Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Draftville. This is episode four as we continue to count down toward the NFL Draft, which is coming to the Music City, Nashville, Tennessee in late April. I'm your host, Tommy Dees, here at the Tennessean Podcast Headquarters in Nashville. Today, we're going to be talking storylines and interesting characters for the draft with Chase Goodbread of NFL.com. How are you doing, Chase? I'm good, Tommy. And, and you've got an interesting job, and I'd like to trade with you because you get to go travel around and do long-form journalism on draft prospects for NFL.com. Uh, what, what has that been like, and how long have you been doing that particular segment of this? It's It's been great. I've been doing it for two years now, and I was in the sports writing business for uh, around 25 years with my fingers crossed, kind of hoping to get a gig exactly like that. I thought they were all gone, but, uh, luckily I, I stumbled on the one still around and, and, uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I've, I've, get to travel pretty much all over the country, somewhat regionally. Most of the travel I do is in the Southeast. Uh, but, but sometimes I venture out further than that and, and, uh, get to write some, some deep, uh, human interest stories primarily on, on draft prospects of all sorts. And and for a few years before that, you were just kind of a draft coverage guy period year round. Uh, just exactly. You know, keeping yeah, track pretty, of, pretty much of quick, everyone. short, quick news stories on, on draft related news. I did that for about four years before NFL.com decided to, to branch out into uh, some, some long forms on, on prospects. Yeah. And your uh, archive page can be found at NFL.com backslash back to campus, the numeral two. Uh, for those of who might want to read some of these or your past looks at people like Nick Chubb and Calvin Ridley and Baker Mayfield from, from last year's draft class. Yeah. Year one for us was 2017, 18 and, and uh, Chubb Mayfield, several others. We actually wrote Christian Wilkins that year because at that, at the time I wrote it, it was expected that he would come out as an underclassman and shockingly he decided to stay at Clemson for his senior year and so uh, we we kind of rep- repurposed and repackaged that one a little bit and brought it out again uh, the following year so that one's that one served a two-year purpose well let's start with Christian Wilkins because he's one of the more intriguing prospects in this draft both from a football and and a backstory uh, standpoint and and the thing I like about this episode that's unique is we're going to get to talk about some personalities and some backstories. So why, why don't you relate his story as he related it to you? Yeah, Christian Wilkins, uh, just quickly from a football standpoint, is, is a phenomenal defensive lineman who, who's got versatility to play tackle and end, about 300 pounds roughly, and, and has been a big problem for pretty much anyone who's tried to block him for four years at Clemson. He, he's played a ton of football there. Uh, and his backstory, he, he's, he's from the Northeast 
And you know, his backstory is, is a pretty sad one, actually. He had a grandfather named Yuri Stamps, whom he was very close with. And uh, Yuri Stamps was, was tragically killed uh, in an incident where police uh, raided his home and they were serving a warrant on, uh, I believe, a cousin of Wilkins or uh, a nephew of Stamps, a, a somewhat distant relative, and, and, and a friend of his, um, friend of the cousins, that is. So they weren't even really looking for Yuri Stamps, but the information the police had was that the, the guy they were serving the warrant on was, was under Stamps' roof. So they break into the house, and uh, they secure the premises, and... Uh, of course, stamps. Everybody in the house gets secured, whether you're whether the warrant's being on served on you or not. And and what ended up happening is uh, uh, a, a firearm got accidentally discharged uh, while they were securing stamps, and it it, it hit him and, and he died from it. And there was a lawsuit involved, and it was it was a big mess. But for Christian Wilkins, who at the time was was pretty young, uh, it was obviously a pretty devastating blow. So. Uh, he ended up transferring schools, and and uh, it was a tough time for him. He, he's a happy-go-lucky guy. He's, he's a, a guy that's pretty much always carries a great attitude. But for a year or so, he was he was in a pretty dark place, like anybody would be. And he ends up coming out of it and and uh, going to a, a private school in Connecticut called Suffolk Academy. Uh, and uh, from there, he, he goes on to Clemson. And and made quite a quite a name for himself at Clemson. How have you ever seen? Uh, I guess maybe you have at Alabama, but have you ever seen a defensive line with as many prospects uh, going into one draft as Clemson has this year? It's remarkable. Yeah, I, I mean, even the, even the best of Alabama's defensive lines and Alabama's defensive lines from year to year have no peer. Uh, but I'm not sure you can identify one single Alabama defensive line that delivered in the NFL draft quite like this one is about to Wilkins and, and uh, Cleveland Farrell look like first round picks. Dexter Lawrence might be a first round pick himself. Austin Bryant's going to be a, uh, a nice prize for somebody. And he's kind of the forgotten guy. Yeah, so he's, he's the run uh, the of the whole, litter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the whole line's going to go. And, and uh, Wilkins of uh, that whole group, Wilkins was actually the, probably the first one to establish himself as a star level player. Uh, in the ACC, but uh, before you know it, he gets Lawrence in there at defensive tackle, which I think probably gave uh, Dabo Sweeney a little bit more versatility and and uh, ability to maybe move Wilkins around a little bit. And then all of a sudden, Cleveland Farrell uh, comes in behind Shaq Lawson, uh, who had preceded him, and Lawson's a first-round pick, and and uh, Farrell, Farrell's gone off as well. So, yeah, that Clemson defensive line, uh, ACC foes have been waiting a long time for it to finally go away <laughs> speaking about somebody that people have waited a long time to go away hunter renfro um the presumed pick of the new england patriots at some point um he's got quite a story and a real interesting one i know a little bit about this because um when i was covering alabama uh for for the tuscaloosa news and they kept playing clemson and all these big games uh did a story on Hunter Renfro, I think his junior year, and, and as a position coach, I believe it was, uh, told the story about how, how he kept hearing about this this next great receiver and, and Clemson, you know, that was in the state. And, and Clemson had been recruiting these guys who've gone on to NFL, you know, six foot, six foot one, 190 pounds, you know, four, four forties. 
and and so he finally shows up at a camp and, and he says well which one is hunter renfro and and this kind of undersized white kid who doesn't overwhelm you that looked like he's in junior high steps up and everybody said that's the guy you got to watch yeah, Renfro, the story we did on Renfo is probably a little bit more football focused than, than most of the ones we do, but it but it was a fun one to write for sure. A guy who's pretty much been overlooked is, is, until no one could overlook him anymore, really. He uh, was a triple option quarterback at the high school level and, and an extremely successful one. Uh, but it's, you know, Sweeney told me himself, it's really hard to project a triple option quarterback as a wide receiver anymore. And so they didn't know what they had with him. He ends up walking on at Clemson, didn't even have a scholarship shows up, I think at under 150 pounds. I think he played his senior year of high school around 155. I think he actually showed up under 150 because right before fall camp of his freshman year at Clemson, he had tonsillitis, had his tonsils removed, and he was on a liquid diet for about a week. So he, he it's, it's tough for a 155-pounder to lose 5 or 10 pounds, but that's what he was facing going into uh, his his first fall camp at Clemson. And, it, of course, it took him a year. He got redshirted. Uh, but his redshirt freshman year, which would have been 2015, uh, he, he shows up not much bigger, maybe 165 pounds, 170 tops, but – all of a sudden, no one could cover him. Um, Mackenzie Alexander was the star defensive back for that Clemson team. Went on to be a second-round pick of the Minnesota Vikings. Mackenzie Alexander couldn't cover this guy, and no one could really figure out why. And and uh, you know, it turns out he's got a heck of a knack for being able to change directions without slowing down. Really, uh, and, and it's. Uh, kind of suits him well for that slot role where you've got to get open immediately for the hot blitz read from a quarterback. And uh, next thing you know, he's, he's catching balls left and right in practice and, and they put him on the field and, and uh, you know, before you know it, he's, he's catching touchdowns and uh, making impacts in national championship games. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned the intangible above all intangibles at his position. He catches everything, doesn't he? Great hands. Yeah. Super hands. And those had to develop as well. You know, one of the anecdotes he gave me when, when I went to South Carolina, he's from Myrtle beach. I went up there and spent a day with him last summer to get the story written. And he said, he said his first practice ever at Clemson, he dropped the first five balls that were thrown to him and, and, uh, they were all, it was routes against air. Uh, so, uh, he wasn't even, he didn't even have a defensive back challenging him and, and, uh, he'd never played receiver before. Like I said, he was a triple option quarterback his whole career. And I think he said, uh, Cliff Stout actually, who's gone now was, was one of the quarterbacks that were slinging passes to him he couldn't do anything with him so it, it you know it took him a year that red shirt i think along with gaining 10 or 15 pounds he had a lot to learn about the position itself but a definitely different player when he came back uh, in 2015 for year two well let's uh switch to another guy that's got an interesting story at another school elijah holyfield obviously the last name resonates uh, running back at georgia um i, I can guess what you talked to him about <laughs> yeah yeah, the son of uh, former heavyweight champion of Vander Holyfield. Uh, Vander Holyfield's actually the the only. And I know you know your boxing history, Tommy D's. Uh, he's the only guy to ever be the heavyweight, or excuse me, be the, the champion of the world at two different weight classes. And uh, he's globally popular. Uh, so um, a lot of pressure there for sure for Elijah Holyfield. When he was young, football was his sport from the beginning, although he did kind of venture into boxing for about five years. He actually started out 
in Taekwondo uh, when he was really young, you know, maybe five, six, seven years old, uh, his mom put him in a, a Taekwondo class that was taught by Greg Lloyd, uh, who, here we go. We're talking about Steelers, Tommy. So we're, we're, we're in your wheelhouse, wheelhouse once again, boxing and Steelers. <laughs> Uh, Greg Lloyd uh, actually picked up Taekwondo himself during his playing career in Pittsburgh and became a black belt at it. And after he retired, he moved to Atlanta and started instructing it. And uh, he had Elijah Holyfield as one of his students. And he, Lloyd and, and Elijah traveled all over the South to a bunch of Taekwondo tournaments. He was a two-time champion, as a matter of fact. And then he picked up boxing for about five years. But uh, around the time that, that he was maybe 13 uh, years old, 14 years old, he decided that he was going to stick with football permanently, and uh, he dropped the boxing. Happened to get a chance to talk to Evander face-to-face for that story, which was obviously pretty neat. And uh, Evander told me that he dropped football for boxing at almost exactly the same age. Uh, Evander uh, grew up in the Atlanta area and uh, played football, I think, until he was a, a freshman or a sophomore in high school. But at that point, he realized boxing was his ticket. He was super small. You know, he only weighed, I think, 115, 120 pounds as a high school freshman. They had him at cornerback, and he didn't think there was enough action there. So, because, uh, of course, at that time in, in high school football, cornerbacks don't see any action at all because everybody runs the ball back in those days. Right, unless, you, so unless you're coming up, up for a run support. Unless you're coming up for run support, you weren't doing much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he was just out there waiting on the sweep. <laughs> but 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 Elijah Holyfield also had some pressure in a different way because he comes up at Georgia behind a couple of pretty good running backs. Yeah, he did. Nick Chubb and, and Sony Michelle were in his way for sure when he got there and uh, he didn't really play much at all. He he was actually in p- potentially going to see some pretty significant playing time his freshman year in 2016, but he, he injured an ankle fairly seriously, a high ankle sprain uh, during fall camp of his freshman year, about a week before the season was supposed to start. Uh, Georgia was going to be playing North Carolina to open the season that year. That was the year that Nick Chubb was coming off his horrific injury and and Chubb went crazy in that game, ran for about 250 yards on North Carolina, kind of let everybody know that his knee was okay. And, and Holyfield at one point during fall camp was slated to be the primary backup in that game, but he, he messed up his ankle and he was never right the rest of the year. So he barely played his freshman year. And then he comes, comes back his sophomore year. He's got the same two guys in his way again, because Chubb and Michelle both decide they're going to come back to school again, so his sophomore year, I think he only got about 50 carries the whole season and uh, had to had to bide his time once again. It wasn't easy for him, obviously, a guy his caliber sitting on the bench for two years. But, you know, Kirby Smart has taken a certain mentality for the running backs, I think, and imparted it over at Georgia since he left Alabama in that uh, as a running back, you don't have to carry the ball 20 times a game uh, for one season, much less two or three in order to get noticed by the NFL. And uh, you know, the running back position is a unique one in that the, uh, the odometer runs fast and hard. And so 
you know, you, you can you can get overspent and overcarried at the college level sometimes, and it can be detrimental to your pro prospects. And so he went into his junior year um, not too worried about the fact that he hadn't played a ton because he knew his his career wise his legs were really fresh and runs for a thousand yards for Georgia last year. So uh, he. Had to wait his turn, but had the big year when the came, when the time came. Now, when your time comes, you be, you better show out. But but he did it. Yeah, and uh, he he didn't show out as well in the in the combine. Um, do you think he has the tools to make it? Does he have the speed? Some NFL teams are going to consider his forty yard dash times disqualifying, which is unfortunate for Holyfield. He ran. Four seven eight uh, at the combine, and my understanding is he didn't really improve on that at Georgia's pro day. And so, for a handful of NFL teams, uh, that makes him a pretty much a scratch right there, especially at a position that's that's a little bit devalued uh, at, at this point in time in the National Football League. That being said, he, he brings a lot of other skills. He's got a lot of power. Um, he can make people miss here and there and, and, uh, you know, he's a, he's an outstanding blocker. So that helps. I mean, not a, not a, not a huge guy he weighs about 220, 225 big, but, but not, you know, not a monster necessarily, at least not at the NFL level. I think you will get drafted probably on the third day. Uh, but, uh, this, the, the combine 40 time, no doubt it hurt him. Yeah, and we are talking to Chase Goodbread of NFL.com, who covers the draft year-round, and, and really more in a storytelling capacity rather than just an X and O and what was their time in the shuttle drill type things. And and to me, the, the stories behind these players are what makes the draft compelling. Another guy with a very compelling story, especially being that the draft is in Nashville this year, is Jalen Hurd, who is from this area. And uh, we'll be um, on some boards. Uh, tell us a little more about him. He has a really interesting and, and some would say checkered um, history. Yeah, checkered for sure. Jalen Hurd, SEC fans will remember, was one of the best running backs in the SEC for a couple of years at the University of Tennessee. And his junior year at UT, I believe this was 2015, uh, he, uh, got sideways, certainly with the coaching staff. He got, um, disenchanted with the running back position at the same time. And, uh, he ended up more or less just walking away from the team in mid season, uh, when, when he could have easily uh, been drafted pretty high the following April in the NFL draft. And so it was a, it was a curious decision that he made. I mean, you, you think about it, if you're, if you're what, I think there were only four games left on Tennessee's schedule when he decided he was done. So if you stick it out, those four games kind of bide your time. Uh, you get drafted maybe in the first or second round, probably not the first round, more likely it would have been a day two pick, but nevertheless, there's a lot of money in that. It was right there for him, uh, to get, to get picked in that draft. And, you know, it, uh, uh, he decided that wasn't going to be for him. He decides that, uh, the, the wide receiver position is going to be more suited for him. And he was, he was done at Tennessee. He didn't get along with, with Butch Jones. Uh, he, he wasn't real crazy about the offense. And so he just kind of pulls the plug on his season and, and, and leaves Tennessee, went and stayed with a friend in Virginia, uh, for the rest of that college football season, just kind of hold up in an apartment. So if you're an NFL scout, Obviously, that's a, a pretty darn big red flag. 
but he had a plan. His plan was to convert himself to a wide receiver. He ends up at Baylor playing for Matt Rule, who at the time had, had just gotten that job at Baylor. Uh, when they took Jalen Hurd on, he dropped about 20 pounds, went from 240 to 220, 225. And uh, now he's, he's, Looking to get drafted again, hard to say where he's going to go, but uh, in his one season as a receiver at Baylor this past year, he was he was pretty darn effective. Yeah, and, and usually when you see a running back switch to wide receiver, whether they change schools or not, it's usually more of a scat back slot type guy. That's not Jalen Hurd. No, no, Jalen Hurd was a, a big guy for sure, an athletic guy, a guy with speed and quickness to be sure at Tennessee, but you're right. Uh, guys that size practically never make that switch. He decides he wants to do it. So he goes to Baylor and of course at the combine NFL teams asked him a whole lot of questions about, uh, you know, the whole situation at Tennessee. Uh, it was the year that Alvin Kamara kind of blew up and, and, and made himself known to NFL scouts when he, uh, decided to move on. As a matter of fact, when, when he left, that, that opened the door a little bit for Kamara. Uh, Kamara's career game at Tennessee came against Texas A&M that year when uh, um, when Hurd was unavailable with a with an injury, and so he, he ended up with somewhere over, I think over 300 total yards in that game. It's kind of a coming out party for him, and and I think that might have flung the door open a little bit wider for Hurd. Yeah, the Saints were obviously watching that film. Um, yeah, everybody everybody likes quarterbacks, and and you uh, spent some time with Drew Locke, who's a very intriguing prospect at that position for this draft. He's he's certainly got the arm. Um, he's got some of the intangibles. He touts his leadership and and talks openly about that. What do you know about him? Locke was actually the the first story we did for this past season. And so I was able to catch him. Uh, I went up to Missouri and spent a day with him toward the end of July. This would have been right before fall camp uh, for the Tigers. And for that story, we ended up on ended up focusing on his freshman year in 2015, which is an extremely trying year for him. He comes. He was an in-state recruit, a highly touted recruit, and so Missouri fans kind of looked at him like. Uh, kind of a future savior type caliber recruit. And he comes in and he's stuck behind Matty Mock. And at the time, Matty Mock had, had just taken Missouri to an SEC championship game and was a pretty much entrenched as, and established as a starting quarterback. So he kind of figured he wasn't going to play a ton his freshman year. Well, uh, things went way off the rails for Mock. He got suspended. He got kicked off the team. And so midseason, they throw Locke in there. And so... For the balance of that year, which was about eight games, he just took an absolute beating, uh, physically, mentally, and every other way. I think he threw more interceptions than he had touchdowns. His completion percentage was under 50%. And of course, Missouri lost uh, the majority of those games. And so definitely a tough year for him and, and coinciding with all that adversity on the field. Uh, you, you had the campus unrest at Missouri as well uh, with the student protests trying to get the, the president ousted for his response to uh, racism on campus. And so the football team, of course, got involved with that as well. And at one point, 
kind of asserted its its influence by uh, saying they weren't going to practice or play until the the president was out of there. And so uh, this is a lot to deal with for a for a guy who's you know a freshman quarterback and kind of expected even as a freshman to be. Uh, not only a leader, but a little bit of a, uh, you know the face of the program. So, a lot to deal with that freshman year for sure. But but uh, you know that December, once that season had passed, he went back home, spent about three weeks with his with his private quarterback coach, which he was able to do because Missouri didn't even qualify for a bowl game, and uh, came back that following spring with uh, all the confidence he needed, and 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 really worked out a lot of the kinks in his game. Yeah, and um, he's he's as I said a very intriguing uh, prospect. He he certainly looks like he can make all the throws. Um, he's not at, at the top of everybody's list, but sometimes those are the guys who stick and become the better ones. And I I kind of like him. Um, I, what do you think of it? When when you see him play, what do you see? I see a guy that that can really throw the deep ball. Um, I, I see a guy who's not afraid to to send it downfield. His career completion percentage isn't as high as a lot of guys, but that's because Missouri's offense, even though he had three offensive coordinators and played in multiple systems at Missouri, uh, he never really was a dink and dunk quarterback who's just going to throw you know little screens and shallow crosses and what and things like that like a lot of quarterbacks in college football do now he's he was asked to to stand in there and throw it down the field a lot and so i think nfl teams definitely like that about him uh one of the question marks scouts have had is is you know his he's performed a lot better against the weaker competition on Missouri's schedule than the tougher competition. And, and a lot goes into that. Sometimes that says something about the quarterback. Sometimes it says something about the quarterback's protection. So, uh, you know, he had a lot of heat in his face for sure against teams like Georgia and, and some of the stronger defenses that Tigers had to play. So scouts are going to have to take all that into consideration as well. Uh, but he is, he's big. He's about six four, two twenty five. He's, he's pretty athletic and, and he's pretty fearless. So that's a lot going for him. Yeah. And, um, again, we talked about stories and, and you're the storyteller at NFL.com as far as the draft goes. So one more guy I want to ask you about, who's got a very interesting story and another, on another dimension, he might've ended up a quarterback in this draft. Uh, David Sills is a name. Not everybody remembers, but probably everybody heard about if they follow football. Yeah, David Sills was kind of known nationally when he was in the seventh grade, and, and Lane Kiffin offered him as a quarterback. Kiffin, of course, was the head coach at USC at the time. I think he'd just gotten there, and Sills was uh, a kind of a quarterback phenom at, at, at age, you know, twelve or whatever he was. So if Kiffin offers him, he he, he, was, he, a, he was a punt passing kick all American. I mean, what's he, that? He was a punt passing kick all American. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, Kiffin ends up offering him a scholarship, and and it was such a big deal for a kid that young to get a scholarship offer from anyone, much less a program like USC. He was on Good Morning America a couple days later. So, you know, it really kind of hit the the public consciousness as a pretty crazy thing. And, you know, as as luck would have it, he he goes through high school and and his whole high school football career is almost a crazy story on its own. But he ended up injuring a finger on his throwing hand really bad uh, during his high school career. And it kind of changed his delivery. It changed his, his release and his ability to get the ball out quickly. 
and uh, he was pretty much fizzled as a quarterback prospect. West Virginia ended up signing him because uh, after Kiffin, Kiffin washed out at USC, uh, the, the next coach said, "You know, you're not what you're really not our cup of tea." So he ends up at West Virginia, and uh, Dana Holgerson didn't feel like he was a quarterback either. Kind of let him throw it around as a as a freshman and didn't see what he wanted to see. Couldn't convince him to play receiver, so. Uh, he goes and transfers to a junior college in California to try to uh, kind of reclaim his quarterback career and maybe transfer to another school so he could play. Goes out to California and, and has a tough year out there, gets to the end of it, and, and doesn't even really have a quarterback offer from anybody. So here's here's a guy that got offered by USC as a quarterback at 12 years old, and now at 19 years old, he can't get anybody to take him. And uh, he took a long time and a lot of soul searching, but he finally decides, okay, it's just not going to happen for me at quarterback. I'm going to embrace this wide receiver thing and goes back to West Virginia, uh, tells Holgerson I'm bought in. And, uh, the next thing you know, he's, he's catching touchdown after touchdown. I think he averaged about a touchdown catch per game over two years at West Virginia, which, which is pretty amazing. And, and, uh, he's, about a big guy, you know, six three, six four, over two hundred pounds, and you know runs well. Will Greer loves him as a as a receiving target, so uh, it worked out for him. But you know, it uh, took a long time for him to to finally give up on the dream of playing the quarterback position. And that's kind of what that story focused on. Yeah, and ironically, he's catching those touchdown passes from a guy who will be in the draft also. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Will Greer, uh, uh, who of course started his career at Florida, ended up transferring himself. Uh, Greer loved him. As soon as they met, they they kind of had a chemistry together, and uh, almost immediately, Sills became his primary target. And you know, like I said, he ended up he ended up with about as many touchdown catches as games played for the Mountaineers. Well, Chase Goodbread from NFL.com, thank you for joining us here on the Draftville podcast and sharing your stories from guys that we will see uh, take the stage in Nashville uh, coming up in a little later this month. Enjoyed it anytime, Tommy. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode of Draftville. We hope you'll continue to follow us as we count down to the NFL draft in Nashville, Tennessee. You can download this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever your favorite podcast is found, please subscribe and leave us a comment and a rating.